Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, this beautiful day that you've provided. Thank you for the coming of spring and uh, the fact that we can see things growing and we can see your goodness to us. We thank you for your provision for us, not just uh, in the weather or in caring for our bodies, but in uh, providing for our salvation and caring for us body and soul. And we thank you that you do that through the church, that you don't just save us as Lone Ranger Christians, but that you bring us together, that we're part of a, a story, we're part of a family, we, we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And we pray that we would just get a sense and catch a glimpse of that today as we look at one part of uh, your family, one part of that story. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, welcome. Um, it's good to have you all here. This is our second class in our new members class. Um, if you've got your binders, you'll see again in the front, they, we kind of give you the roadmap of what we're covering each week. And uh, last week was just the kind of overview intro week where we talked about what is church membership, um, why do we do church membership, what does it mean to be a member, what's the process, all of those kinds of things. So that's definitely a, a class uh, that if you weren't able to hear, will be good to listen to. What we'll do is send out... Um, I'm going to put myself a reminder right now. We'll send out uh, a link to the audio so you can go back and listen to that. We're going to be recording all of these. So if you want to re-listen to something for some reason, if you're you know really bored or something, or uh, if you miss a week, we would ask that you go back and listen to anything you missed because we've, we've tried to be selective. There's a lot we could cover in a new members class. We've tried to say, okay, what are the things that we most want to cover? Hey, come on in, guys. And um, so if you are sick or out of town or something, that's absolutely fine. But just go back and listen to the uh, audio from whatever weeks you missed. Um, one thing that we did last week a little bit was to ask everyone to go around and just sort of say, what's your name, church background experience, your desire in coming to the class? Um, we had some people who were gone last week. And so at the end of class today, if we have time and if we end up having a number of those students uh, we had, uh, PhD was on spring break, so a lot of our students were gone. If they end up being back, we'll do that this week. If most of them are not back yet, then we'll do it next week. But at some time in the next week or two, I'll have those, hey, come on in, who uh, weren't able to give an intro um, to do that as well, just so that we all have a chance to meet each other. Uh, one other thing to mention in terms of housekeeping that's not on your schedule. The schedule will show you, you know, what we're going to do in our Sunday meetings over the next nine weeks or the next, I guess, seven weeks now. Um, but one other thing that we want to do soon is have a kind of cookout get together for everyone in the class. Um, last year we did that and we did it, we did all our, our classes and then we had that get together and everyone said that was really great. And I wish we had done it at the beginning of the class. We could have like known each other and then gone through the class together. And we thought, Oh yeah, that makes more sense. So, um, it, it's obviously a, a bit dicier in terms of weather. But we're going to try to t find a time in March or um, early April, but hopefully sometime in March here when we can all get together during the week, go over to somebody's house, have a meal, and just get to know each other in that way. So we'll, we'll have that opportunity to kind of uh, put some names and faces together. So anyways, just a couple of housekeeping items there. So today we are starting to talk about uh, the first of kind of three things we want to cover in this class, right? We want to talk about um, it, what we think is important for you to know as you think about joining Catoctin is a bit about our history as a church, uh, a bit about our theology as a church, and then a bit about our worship as a church. And there's a, a number of things we'll talk about under each of those 
kind of categories. So we're going to spend about three weeks-ish on each of those uh, subjects. And so today is kind of the first uh, of our lessons on our history. What's our story? What's our background? And that'll help you to know a bit about um, where we're coming from, what you're joining, if you were to join Catoctin, and, and so forth. And so today I want to kind of take the broadest angle lens and just talk about the history of Presbyterianism, right? We're Catoctin Covenant Presbyterian Church, but what exactly does that mean to be a Presbyterian church? What, what, what are you joining when you join a Presbyterian church? And there's a lot we can say about that in terms of theology and our beliefs, but there's also a background that has shaped those things and in, in, in a background in which those things have been expressed. And so we want to look at some of that today, looking at the history of Presbyterianism, especially in Europe and in America. So I'm going to try to go through a lot of material here, and I thought to help I would uh, put together uh, an outline that you can kind of use to, to track along. So maybe we can just take one of those, pass it around. Um, you know, oftentimes when we try to do these kind of like overview survey history things, what the teacher tries to do is to cover everything, which means if I can mention every name and every date, then I've done my job, which can make the teacher feel like they've covered the material. But usually as a student, you just sort of sit there going, I have no idea what I just listened to, or I'm not going to remember any of that, right? And so uh, even though there's some value in just kind of getting the rundown of the timeline, uh, I want to do something a little bit different today. If you look in your binders under the second tab, I think, you'll see a couple of handouts that will show you kind of some key names and dates for especially American Presbyterian church history, and you'll see a kind of... Uh, uh, family tree timeline thing that I'll talk about uh, a little bit later. Uh, but that that's more kind of for your reference. What I want to do today is to kind of take a wide-angle lens on what is the Presbyterian story. And especially for those of you who may be totally new to Presbyterianism, I want you to have a sense of what it is that we're about. And again, the the, the kind of family that um, that you might be part of if you choose to join our church. And so the way I want to address this is to talk about uh, Presbyterian roots, Presbyterian shoots, and Presbyterian fruits. In other words, where does Presbyterianism come from, right? Let's talk about that question. Wh- where does Presbyterian emerge and flourish? You know, wh- when we talk about Presbyterianism, where is that taking place? And then Presbyterian fruits would be, what are some of the things that have marked our tradition or come out of our story, things that we can look to and be inspired by as Christians today and as Presbyterians today. Um, as we begin, let me just say as well, the purpose of this is not to be like patting ourselves in the back or triumphalistic or, yeah, Presbyterians are the best. It's more to say you, you, you could do a lesson like this with pretty much every branch of Christ's church, right? You know, there are amazing things that God has done through all sorts of denominations, right? So this is not pitting one denomination against another. It's just saying this is our denominational tradition. God has worked powerfully through it, and I want you to be aware of some of those things. So that's that's the goal, to, to move us to humble gratitude for what God has done, not kind of self-congratulation for what we think we've done. Okay, So that's, that's the, the heart that we're going for. So let's talk about Presbyterian roots. Where does all of this begin? And a, a good place to start here is just to ask the question, what is a Presbyterian? Because some of you may be wondering that right now. What, what are we talking about? What is a Presbyterian? Um, can anybody just take a stab at maybe giving some sort of a definition? I mean, what, what, what would mark one church as being Presbyterian as opposed to another church? Yeah, church government would be 
a, a big one. In fact, if you look at the word Presbyterian, it comes from the Greek word for, for elder. So a Presbyterian church is a church that is ruled by elders. Uh, we'll talk more about this maybe in some other classes as well, but just to kind of get the language in front of you now, you know, you may hear us talk about the session, right, in our church. What that's referring to is the elders of our local church. So here at Catoctin, we have uh, four ruling elders, uh, men who have day jobs, right, working in, in other fields, but also serve as officers in the church. And we have one teaching elder. That's my role, uh, serving full-time here as an elder, primarily focusing on preaching and teaching and other things as well. And together, we make up the session of our local church. And so we're responsible to help um, provide spiritual leadership and instruction and so forth. And we are um, identified and, and voted on by the congregation. So it's not something that is kind of sent in from the outside, um, but that's the structure. The Presbyterian government means elder rule. And then that kind of gets reflected out as well at broader levels. So all the churches in our area, you know, Maryland, Virginia, make up what we call one presbytery. So those are all of the elders of those individual churches joined together at that kind of mid-level to help govern the life of the church in that area. And then that can go up beyond that even to what we call the General Assembly, which would be all of the elders in a whole denomination, usually one country, that are coming together to deal with matters related to the church as a whole. And you can think of it maybe a little bit like American government, okay, if, if this all this feels a little disorienting, because actually Presbyterian church government helped to shape the way that American church government was set up. We'll talk about that story a little bit later, where you kind of have these ascending levels, but but the higher level is not always more powerful in everything. Sometimes state governments have more authority in one area than federal government, sometimes not, right? But there, that, there's kind of that structure. It's similar in Presbyterian. And Presbyterianism. And so when we say someone is Presbyterian or a church is Presbyterian, that's kind of the most basic definition. It's their church government. But of course, when we talk about being Presbyterian, we mean more than just that, right? There's not only a commitment to a certain way of running the church or, or organizing the government of the church, there's a theology that we embrace. So Reformed theology, if you hear that term, Reformed, Presbyterian, um, th those are often talking about the same and so as a church, we're Presbyterian both because of how we're structured, but also Presbyterian in terms of what we believe. I'm not going to talk about all those beliefs today because, again, we've got a couple of weeks where we're going to kind of walk through some of our theologies. So you'll be introduced to some of those kind of distinctives of the Reformed um, theological tradition. But that's the kind of last thing we can think of. It's not only church government and theology, but also there's a tradition, there's a story, there's a connection, a lineage. We're part of a certain family. So that's what we mean when we say Presbyterian. So thinking about that, when did Presbyterianism begin? Um, there's two answers you could give to this question that are both right in one sense. Okay, The first answer, probably what, what, what jumps to your mind if you know anything of Presbyterian church history, is to say, okay, Presbyterianism begins with the Reformation. Right. So, you know, in the West, you have uh, the, 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 the church that in the Middle Ages is falling into all sorts of errors, there's all sorts of divisions, there's all sorts of confusion and questions, and in the 1500s, the Reformation uh, begins to try and deal with some of those problems, answer some of those questions, and reform the church, right? That's what the Reformation is. It's trying to reform the church according to Scripture, and that's when you start to see churches calling themselves 
you know, First Presbyterian Church or whatever. So you could look at, at, at that and say, okay, well, that's where all of this starts. In one sense, that's true. That, that's where you're going to see churches calling themselves Presbyterianism. But I do want to just mention that in a very important sense, that is not where Presbyterianism begins. Uh, Presbyterianism doesn't go back 500 years, and there's nothing before that. Um, we believe that Presbyterianism is what, what we see functioning in the New Testament, both in terms of government and theology, right? That's our, that's our argument, that's our commitment, that's why we do what we do, not just because there's this tradition going back 500 years, but because we believe this is biblical. And actually, you can pick up important parts of what we now would call Reformed theology or the Reformed tradition, and you can see that playing out all through the history of the church. So what does that mean for you thinking about coming into the church? Well, what that means is you can expect us, as we are thinking and teaching and living together, to look back not just to our Presbyterian forefathers 500 years ago, but all of church history, because we think that's part of our story too. Right? We don't want to say everyone in the past was Presbyterian just like me. Of course not. There's been all sorts of different beliefs and practices within, Christian, within Christianity, um, all sorts of ways in which people disagree and all of that. We want to recognize that. But we think that our heritage includes the whole history of the church. So the church fathers, uh, the, the medieval figures, there's a lot we can learn from in every period. So some Presbyterians will talk about being Reformed Catholics instead of Roman Catholics, right? So there's this idea that, that we, we, we're united to the church beyond our borders. And that's true, not just in terms of, of space, you know, other churches in town, but also in terms of time, other churches down through the centuries. So there's kind of two ways to answer that question, but, but uh, it's important to keep that broader background in mind. Having said that, there is a very real sense in which we can say, okay, well, when did Presbyterianism begin to flourish? When do you really begin to see it starting in an identifiable, you know, first pres of whatever kind of place? Well, and there we do see it coming in the Reformation. So let me talk a little bit about those roots. And the story of Presbyterianism kind of taking shape and flourishing really is tied up in the stories of two men, both of whom are named John. John Calvin and John Knox. Um, John Calvin was one of the early Protestant reformers. Again, if we think of the Reformation, if we know anything about it, we're probably like, oh yeah, that's something with Luther, and he had problems with the Roman Catholic Church, and so he started the Reformation. Um, that's the story a lot of us know. Well, in actual fact, there was widespread um, disagreement with the church on different issues. Luther was one of the first and certainly the most influential reformer, but he wasn't on his own, making up the Reformation. There were all sorts of different pastors and theologians and ordinary Christians who saw there are a lot of problems here in the church, right? Um, there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of false theology. There's a lot of downplaying of Scripture. There's a lot of things that need to change. And so there were a lot of people who were pushing for reform, pushing for change. And uh, some of those um, were within what we call the Reformed stream. So that's part of the tradition that we're kind of connecting back into. And Calvin was one of the leaders of, of that movement, alongside men like Luther, for example, in pushing for reform. Calvin was originally French, but the French government was decidedly Roman Catholic and was very happy to kill people that were not Roman Catholic. And so men like Calvin and others often would leave France to carry on their work. And Calvin went over the border into Switzerland long story short, ends up becoming uh, kind of the, the lead pastor in the city of Geneva 
and really working out uh, what, what a Reformed church would look like there on the ground in Geneva. And so he begins to, to um, emphasize and clarify you know, this, I, the things we've been talking about, Presbyterian church government, Reformed theology, this Reformed tradition. And it becomes very much kind of a model for other churches um, around, uh, around Europe at this time. Okay, so jumping over then, that's what Calvin is doing. Over in England, uh, the church is also reforming. But the story of the English Reformation is a really, really fun and messy story. Um, you know, you had some, some, some places that were really being convinced by the theology that they needed to be Protestant and not Roman Catholic. The Church of England becomes Protestant and not Roman Catholic, but not because of theology. What, what was it that, that made England become Protestant? Yeah, King Henry VIII, very famously, had a lot of wives, uh, and uh, he did not like his current wife. He wanted to be able to divorce her for various reasons. I'm oversimplifying. And the Pope said, no, I'm not going to let you divorce her. And so Henry VIII divorced the Pope and said, well, I'm not going to be Catholic anymore. Uh, we're going to have a Church of England, and I'm going to be the head of the Church of England. And Henry VIII was not motivated by Reformed theology. He wasn't reading Luther and Calvin and saying, yeah, I'm going to become Protestant there was this dispute with with Rome, and, and that's how it worked out. Well, Henry dies, and his children then, in succession, will take over the throne for him. Their views on theology could not be more different. So his first son, Edward, is very much a Protestant, very much uh, Reformed, and when he comes to the throne, he's actually just a teenager, but he's been very influenced by Reformed teachers. And so he begins to call together Reformed theologians, Presbyterians from all over to try and change the Church of England and make it a Reformed Protestant church. So if those of you who, who may be church history nerds, you know, people like Peter Martyr Vermigli or Ridley or Cranmer or, you know, others like that, Latimer will, will be all involved in this work of Reformed. One of the men that becomes involved in this work of Reformed is a Scotsman named John Knox, and he's working to reform the Church of England. Well, the problem is, Henry doesn't live very long, right? A lot of people don't live very long in this time. He dies. His sister Mary comes to the throne. And not only is she not Presbyterian, she is decidedly Roman Catholic. And she earns the name Bloody Mary because she begins to hunt down and execute those that were working for reform. So what happens? Well, people scatter, right? They leave the country because it's not a safe place to be if you're Presbyterian or Reformed. And so many of them will go to Europe, including John Knox. John Knox goes and lives in Germany, ends up settling in Geneva for a time, studying under Calvin and seeing what a Reformed church would look like, right? And he then takes that back to his home country of Scotland. And we'll kind of pick up that story a little bit in a moment. But it's with those two men, John Calvin and John Knox, that you start to see kind of the formal establishment of a self-consciously Presbyterian church. So those are the roots of it all. Now, it, what are the shoots of Presbyterianism? Where, where do we see it pop up and emerge? Um, I, I want to just cover some of this because I think those of us who maybe even have heard this story before often hear it in a very kind of narrow line. You know, there's Geneva, and then there's Scotland, and then there's America, and then there's me. You know, and that's Presbyterian church history. You know, that's kind of the line. Well, that's one of the branches, but this is actually a much bigger tree, and I, I want you to, 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 to see and appreciate that. So Presbyterianism, Reformed theology, begins to pop up and grow all across Europe at this time. Again, Europe as a whole is having to work out what do we believe? What kind of church are we going to have? And that happens at a national level, because at this point, every nation has an established church, and they've got to pick what that's going to be. 
It also plays out at an individual level that you may be in a Protestant country, but actually be a Roman Catholic yourself, and so you're trying to work that out, or you may be a Roman Catholic in a Protestant, or a Protestant in a Roman Catholic country and trying to work that out. So all of this is, is playing out at different points in time. But you get significant reformed movements in Switzerland, in France, in Germany, the Netherlands, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Italy, all over Europe. So even countries that don't adopt Presbyterianism as their state church will still have a lot of people who are hearing these ideas, trying to live the Christian life in this way, and so forth. France is an interesting case, because again, Calvin, famously, was was French. And we think of France as being decidedly Roman Catholic. There was about a hundred-year period where there was this big back and forth where you couldn't tell if France was going to become a Reformed Presbyterian country or a Roman Catholic country. And there was all sorts of back and forth there about that. But even by as early as 1560, there were three million Presbyterians living in France. So there are whole parts of our story I want you to see that that uh, maybe maybe you haven't been familiar with that are that are part of that heritage. Uh, one place where Presbyterianism does take deep roots is in the Netherlands amongst the Dutch. Um, they become decidedly reformed, and so countries that are kind of self-consciously reformed or Presbyterian would be uh, the Netherlands, a lot, a lot of Switzerland, and then Scotland as well. You'll see the Scottish pop up a lot in these stories. So there's a breadth there, but for our purposes today, I want to just dive in a little bit more to that story we started about where does Reformed theology or Presbyterianism pop up in England and Scotland. And that's for two reasons. One reason is because those are countries where you get a strong version of Presbyterianism. So it's a good place for us to go to say, what does this look like? The second reason is because as Americans who are Presbyterian, a lot of our roots go back to England and especially Scotland. So we're going to be kind of tracing a little bit of our own family tree in doing this. So how does this play out? Well, we talked about how... Um, England was trying to be reformed at some times, but then was pulled back and forth. Knox was involved in that story. That story continues for about a hundred years of kind of back and forth of what are we going to be. And the end result of that is that the Church of England, what we might call the Anglican Church today, becomes definitely Protestant, majority reformed, but a slightly different form than what you'll find in Geneva or in Scotland. One of the big differences being church government. They're not Presbyterian, right? They don't, they're not ruled by elders, they're ruled by bishops. And bishops who are appointed by someone above them. And so there's still that kind of hierarchical government rather than a Presbyterian form of government more focused around local churches. So there is a lot of embrace and overlap with Reformed theology. There's kind of overlap in the tradition, but it's not Presbyterianism at the end of the day. Um, so where do you see Presbyterianism taking root? Well, it's really in Scotland. Remember Knox, right? He, he's a fascinating figure. I wish we could do a whole class on Knox. Uh, he kind of first comes on the scene working actually as a bodyguard for one of the leading Scottish reformers at the time, because at, the, at this time, to preach against Roman Catholicism is very dangerous. So this man, George Wythe, would be standing up preaching John Calvin would be standing next to him holding a claymore, right? That was his job, being bodyguard for, for, for George White. Well, um, through a long series of events, they end up kind of getting hunted down and holed up in this castle on the coast of Scotland. They're being bombarded by the French. He gets kidnapped and is a slave on a galley ship for two years. Most people die after four to six months on a galley ship. 
Calvin or Knox lives for two years. So that tells you the kind of guy he was. Um, he finally is able to be released uh, in Europe. Um, he takes part in part of the you know reform efforts in England, and then of course Mary comes on the scene. He has to run. He goes to Geneva, and after that is finally able to go back to Scotland. So he has been through a lot, right? He has really suffered for his faith. He's really hardened. What is it that he believes? What is it that he thinks is right for the church? And he feels like in Calvin's Geneva, he's seen and experienced a picture of what the church could and should be. And so when he comes back to his native Scotland, that's what he wants to see happen. And so he is, he's not the only one, but he's kind of the leader of bringing reform to the church in Scotland. And it's in Scotland, probably more than anywhere else, that you get a kind of strong, clear version of Presbyterianism. You know, that government, the theology, the tradition, all of it comes together, and, and Knox helps to establish that in Scotland. Now, what is also happening at this time in Europe, right? The Reformation is happening, all these churches are developing, these traditions are forming, but what else is going on? Well, Europe is beginning to colonize the world, right? And so all the things that are happening in Europe get exported to other places. And of course, that history, there's a lot of bad things about that colonial history, uh, but there are some good things that happen as well. And so what you find is countries that are becoming Reformed or becoming Presbyterian will take that with them as they go around the world. So uh, there's a strong, to this day, strong Reformed church in Indonesia. Well, why is that? Well, because the Dutch colonized Indonesia, right? There's strong Presbyterian uh, history in America. Why is that? Well, who ends up kind of winning out in the fight to colonize North America? Well, largely the British. And a lot of the Scottish and Irish who were Presbyterians end up coming over as well. So you can sort of see how this brings us to what we see today. Um, American church history, in terms of Presbyterianism, can be quite complicated. If you have your binders, um, you'll see what looks like a really confusing subway map under that second tab. Um, that's like the family tree of American Presbyterian denominations, right? And some people look at this and they just go, oh my goodness. Uh, and, and if you, if you hang out around Presbyterians, you'll hear them throw around these acronyms. Um, some of you who are in the military, you know, you're used to acronyms. And if you, if you become both a Presbyterian and in the military, you'll be like the master of acronyms because you'll have them all down, right? But they'll say like, oh, well, are you PCA or OPC or ARP or RPCNA or URCNA or, you know, and you're like, what are you talking about? What is this code? Well, they're referring to different churches on this this, this branch. Um, sometimes people will look at this and assume, wow, Presbyterians must be the most argumentative people in the world. That's still under consideration. We're not sure. That might be true. Um but that's not all of what you're seeing on that chart, okay? Those aren't all situations of people who hate each other and are leaving to split and form new churches. Part of what you're seeing there is that the Reformed churches have deep roots in all these different places, right, in Europe. And so if you're an Irish Presbyterian and you come to America, you tend to just continue what you were doing. And then some Scottish Presbyterian will come over and continue what they're doing. And you end up with different churches, not because they're splitting from each other or hating each other, but it's a reflection of that immigrant status, okay? So that's part of what you're seeing there, um, as well as different churches kind of forming and breaking from each other. And again, uh, we won't take the time to kind of try to untangle that that outline, but that can be something you kind of use if you like. You hear someone mention a denomination, you're like, what is the relationship of that to us? And 
you know, you can kind of trace that out. Next week, we're going to talk about the history and culture of the OPC. So I'll let us zoom in on one thread of that so you can see where we came from as a church. But this is, this is, uh, this is the family of American Presbyterian, uh, churches. So we have relationships with just about everyone on these boards. Sometimes strained relationships, sometimes very close relationships. So, uh, but that kind of orients you a little bit to that. Um, today though, Presbyterian shoots go way beyond what you see on that map because Presbyterianism has truly become global. There are something like 75 million Presbyterians around the world today. And actually the countries where there are the most Presbyterians are not places like Scotland or Switzerland or America. It's places like Mexico, where you have two and a half million Presbyterians, or Brazil, where you have between one and two million Presbyterians, or Korea, where you have nine million Presbyterians, or Malawi, or Kenya, or Nigeria, where you've got millions of Presbyterians in each of those countries. And so again, as mission work has happened, Presbyterianism has spread around the globe and is not just part of kind of Western Europe anymore. So again, there's a lot that God has done in and through the Presbyterian story. So what are some of the Presbyterian fruits? Let me just run through a few of these um, as we kind of come to a close. So the first one very much flows out of what we've been talking about. Presbyterianism is global today. Well, how does that happen? Well, part of that happens because one of the fruits of Presbyterianism is a heart for missions, a heart for mission work. Uh, Again, these are things that maybe you, maybe if you have you know, growing up in Presbyterian churches, you think, oh, I wish there was more of this. Well, one way you can argue for that is to say, look back at our history and see how important this was, because these are things that were a big part of what it meant to be Presbyterian and something we can recover today. Even in the 16th century, Calvin was instrumental, not just in trying to reform Geneva, but actually in church planting and in mission work. One of the things that Geneva ended up doing, they, they had the seminary there, and men would come from all over Europe trained to be to be pastors, and be sent back to their home countries, many of them being sent back to martyrdom, but they would go nonetheless. And it bore great fruit. So one of the primary directions this would go is people would come from France, study under Calvin and Geneva, and then go back to France to try and plant churches. Again, at this point, it's illegal to be Protestant. And if you were trying to establish a Protestant church, you will probably be burned at the stake, and many of them were. But despite that, their work grew tremendously. So in 1555, uh, there was only one Presbyterian church in France. Seven years later, because of the missionaries that Calvin was sending, there are 2,000 Presbyterian churches in France. Right? So that gives you a sense of the kind of scale that we're looking at. And of course, Europe was a mission field at this point. But even at this very early stage, Reformed churches were looking beyond Europe. So Calvin actually... Uh, was instrumental in sending a team of missionaries to Brazil in the 1500s, right after it had kind of been discovered by Europeans. And so this is kind of in the DNA of of Reformed churches. Uh, In the 18th century here in America, there was a very famous missionary named David Brainerd. David Brainerd was the son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards, one of the great kind of theologians uh, in, in the American church history story. Brainerd was an interesting guy. Um, he uh, was very bright and intelligent, not always the most organized or disciplined. He actually got kicked out of Yale. Uh, his reviewers said he has as much grace as a chair. And uh, so, he, but he, he ended up having this kind of religious conversion. 
and really wanted to do something with his life. And he had always been very sickly. In fact, he was ultimately going to end up dying of tuberculosis when he was only 29. But he was getting sick. He wanted to serve the Lord. And so he said, I'm going to go out beyond the borders of kind of the established East Coast to try and bring the gospel to the different American Indian tribes around. And he spent the rest of his life traveling on horseback to all these different tribes, trying to learn their language so that the Bible could be translated, trying to preach the gospel to them, trying to plant churches. He had a very short ministry, right? He died when he was 29 years old. He traveled more than 3,000 miles on horseback doing that mission work. Ultimately, when he died, there had been some fruit, but nothing great to show from it. And if that was the end of the story, then we probably wouldn't know anything of David Brainerd. But he had written a diary of his time. And his father-in-law, Jonathan Edwards, took that diary and published it. And it became one of the most influential books in the story of Protestant missions ever. So the life and diary of David Brainerd was something that inspired generations of missionaries to go to the mission field. So, So people like Henry Martin and William Carey, who started... Protestant mission movements uh, in England and in America, they were serving in India primarily. They looked back and said, Brainerd's diary moved me to the mission field. Others like Adinaram Judson served in Burma, David Lyman, who was in Hawaii. Uh, in our in the 20th century, Jim Elliott, who was martyred in Ecuador, was moved to the mission field partially through reading the life and diary of David Brainerd. And so there was this powerful influence um, of, of, of this early Presbyterian missionary on the missionary movement of evangelicals in the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, another name that may be familiar to you, some of you, if you re- grew up reading missionary biographies, uh, Mary Slessor was a Scottish Presbyterian. She went to Africa, did a lot of work with the poor, with children, with women, reaching people that were often overlooked by other missionaries. And she kind of pioneered saying, we need to be having a particular eye, as Christ does, right, for women and children, those in need, and she had a tremendous impact in Africa. There are many others we could mention, but this is one of the fruits of Presbyterianism, global missions. Okay, the second fruit, this is the one that probably most comes to our minds, theological leadership. Um, If you're new to Presbyterians, you're going to learn we love theology, and we love learning, and education's a big deal, and we put a big emphasis on that, and that's always been part of our story, right? There are certain weaknesses that can come with that, right? A weakness is usually an overused strength. So as Presbyterians, we've got to be aware of that and say, okay, is our theology being lived out? Are we applying it? Are we being, are we being patient and kind with people who, who aren't as interested in learning as we are to serve them, not to lord it over them? Those are all kind of dangers we have to be aware of. But, but those weaknesses come because there is a real strength here in our tradition on schools. And, and it makes sense, okay? Because if you think about in, uh, you know, the Reformation that's taking place, part of the movement is to say that the Christian life needs to be centered on what? On the Word of God, right? Hearing the Word, reading the Word, interpreting the Word. Well, what do you have to have in order to be able to do those things well? Well, you need to be able to read. You need to be able to think clearly, maybe to be able to write clearly. And those were things that most people couldn't do in the Middle Ages, right? But in the Reformation, you both have the technology like the printing press that's making it more possible for people to read books and read the Bible, and also this movement from within Protestantism and especially Presbyterianism to train people in how to read so that they can be given to God's Word, 
so that they can grow as Christians. So actually, again, let's go back to John Knox in Scotland. One of the key planks of reform for him, for reforming the church, is actually to start universal education for everyone in Scotland. And so he instituted this system where um, if you wanted to go to school and you were showed yourself to be competent, you could get a free education from, to use our language, you know, kindergarten up through college, right? Well, why does he see that as so important? Well, it's tied to this commitment to the word. And so there's a big emphasis on schooling for everyone and especially training for ministers. And this continues today. Um, Presbyterian ministers have to go to college. They have to go to seminary. The seminary training is very extensive. It's usually about twice as much as what other tradition seminaries will often be. We put a big emphasis on this because we think it's important to be able to handle the Word of God rightly. And that spills over beyond seminaries as well to just education in general. So we can come to America and think about some of the key schools of the Ivy League, Harvard, Yale, especially Princeton. These were started by Reformed people to train pastors for for Reformed churches. And Princeton especially was kind of the uh, college and then seminary of Presbyterians. So there's this big emphasis on education, and that comes out not just in terms of the institutions, but a lot of the leading theologians, men like Charles Hodge or B.B. Warfield, or we'll talk about some next week, J. Gresham Machen, who founds our denomination, the OPC. These were men who were really important leaders, even beyond the Presbyterian Church. This is something that's hard for us to kind of grasp, right? Because we're used to like, if you're a Christian, and especially if you're a conservative Christian, you're kind of in this own little subculture, right? And there's not a whole lot of contact with the broader conversation. People aren't writing about what the OPC is doing in the New York Times, right? Well, in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, they actually were. They would cover debates that were going on in the churches in in the New York Times, uh, in these big newspapers. Someone like Charles Hodge or B.B. Warfield is not just influential in the sense that they're writing books that people in their little denominations will read. They're not just big fish in small ponds. They're actually going on vacation and having dinner with presidents and senators and congressmen and governors and people like that. There's a lot of connection there between the leaders in the church and the leaders in culture and society as a whole. That has changed dramatically, but that was the case at this point in time, which means that their platform was far bigger than just their denominations, even though their denominations were a, a pretty big platform at that time as well. But that's part of the Presbyterian story. And that kind of leads us to, to one of the last things I want to mention, and that is cultural leadership. That part of the fruit of Presbyterianism has been not only uh, found in the church, but beyond the church as well. There's a couple of characters we can mention here. Uh, the first I'll mention is John Witherspoon. You've got his dates in front of you, 1723, 1794. So he was a Scottish Presbyterian um, who ended up moving to America uh, towards uh, in, in the 1700s. And he moved to America to become the president of what would become Princeton at the time, which was not an attractive post at this point in time. Princeton was struggling. They didn't have enough money. They didn't have enough students. They didn't have enough teachers. And the last three presidents of Princeton had all died within a year of taking the post. So uh, Witherspoon's wife was not really keen on him taking this job, but he did. And not only did he manage to live more than a year, he actually was president for quite a long time, but he helped to get the school established. But his influence, again, went beyond just the school or the church. He was one of the American founding fathers. He moved to America as the movement for independence was growing. He not only signed the Declaration of Independence, 
He was the only minister to sign the Declaration of Independence. And in fact, the, the movement for independence was often identified with Presbyterians because Presbyterians tended to be the ones who were most in favor of fighting for independence, right? In fact, uh, King George famously quipped, you know, Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson, right? That uh, the Presbyterians were turning them against the crown. And that was part of the story, right? So there's this influence that, that goes even to the founding of our country. And like I said, if you look at how Presbyterian church government is structured, and then you look at how the American government is structured, it's not the same, but there are a lot of overlaps, in part because the founders were looking at the Presbyterian story. Men like Witherspoon were involved in helping to frame that and seeing that there were good principles that could be applied to the country as a whole. So it's an example of that cultural leadership. Uh, another example we could mention, kind of moving up a little bit further, was the Scotsman Thomas Chalmers. Uh, Thomas Chalmers is not well known today. If anyone knows him at all, they'd probably know him for a sermon he preached called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's a long title, but it's a phenomenal sermon. It's really about what motivates you as a Christian to change. And is it just fear or a sense that, oh, I need to do things differently or I need to be a better person? And he says, no, really what will motivate you is replacing what you naturally love with a greater love, that you're driven by your love for Christ, your love for God's word, that you look at what he calls you to and you say, that's that's what's good and true and beautiful. That's what I want. And that will expulse, it will remove all those other lesser loves and order your life rightly. There's a lot of wisdom for us there. But in Chalmers' day, he was famous for, for many other things. Um, he was kind of a polymath. Uh, he was just an expert in all sorts of areas. He spoke five or six languages. He was a professor originally. He lectured in mathematics, chemistry, natural moral philosophy, political economy. Um, he taught at all sorts of universities. But he had a kind of religious conversion at one point and ended up moving into the church as his field. And he worked in a small church where he saw that the heart of ministry is not just, you know, teaching in the universities and doing these things, but actually caring for the poor, caring for those who were in real need. And he was a man of great gifts. And after serving in a small parish for a while, he was called to become pastor of one of the biggest churches in one of the biggest cities in Scotland. This is at the time of the Industrial Revolution, right? So the city is exploding. All these people are moving in. There is no infrastructure. Work conditions are horrible. Living conditions are worse. Um, it's, it's a really hard time just to be a poor person. And most people were poor people at this time. And Chalmers sees their need and says, that's a need that we as a church can meet, that we can address. And so he developed this whole system where his whole area would be broken up into different groups into different families. He would have people who were going in and visiting. He would often visit house to house to say, what are your needs? How can we help you? They would start schools. They would open hospitals. They would plant churches, trying to meet the physical and the spiritual needs of the people there. And Chalmers was hugely influential for many in seeing this is a kind of model for ministry. Um, one last name I'll mention just to kind of bring us up to the present day, uh, Francis Schaeffer. Some of you may be familiar with Schaefer, he was a Presbyterian pastor and a Presbyterian uh, missionary. Uh, he ended up working in Europe. Um, he and his wife, Edith, founded this thing called Labrie in Switzerland. And it, it was basically kind of a place, you know, remember, this is, this is kind of the height of the hippie movement, the 60s, the 70s. People are shedding Christianity. They think that's what my grandparents believed. I don't want to believe that, but I don't know what to believe. I don't know how to live. 
And a lot of people were seeing, were growing up in churches that were very anti-intellectual, very suspicious of culture and the arts, and they, they were, they, they wanted something else, but they didn't know what they were looking for. Well, Schaefer was this really weird guy who was very engaged with the arts, who was very engaged with philosophy, who was very educated and articulate and compassionate and kind and kind of charismatic. He has this magnetic personality, but he was also a conservative Presbyterian pastor. <laughs> And it was that combination of things that made him someone that people were drawn to. So people would travel from all over the world to live at Labrie, to listen to his teaching, to talk with him. And many people who were big apologists today or influential in culture studied or trained at Labrie and were either converted or kind of had their thinking, their worldview shaped and formed by this Presbyterian pastor. He was also very important in the 80s of helping evangelical Christians in America to see abortion as an issue that they should be really fighting against, right? And, and Schaefer is very important there. Uh, there was an article in Christianity Today where they said, perhaps no intellectual save C.S. Lewis affected the thinking of evangelicals more profoundly than Francis Schaefer. And perhaps no leader of the period save Billy Graham left a deeper stamp on the movement as a whole. And that story continues today. We've actually seen a resurgence of Reformed theology and Calvinism in our day with theological education, with planting churches, with starting schools. In all of these areas, There's a, this is a story that's ongoing. And, and that's what I want to kind of leave us with here. Um, again, the point is not to kind of pat ourselves on the back or say Presbyterians are you know, the best or the only ones. God has worked through all branches of the church and there are a lot of warts and struggles in our own story that we didn't have time to look at today. But I do want you to see that if you are joining with the Presbyterian Church, you're joining something bigger than yourself and bigger than our little church. You're part of a story that goes back all the way to the New Testament. You're part of a story that spreads beyond, you know, Percival, Virginia, to all corners of the world. And you're part of something that has borne fruit in all sorts of areas to bless God's church and to bless God's people. And so that's a bit of the Presbyterian story to hopefully whet your appetite. If you do join the church, we'll probably end up doing church history classes and things like that where you'll get even more into some of these things. But that just can be something to kind of orient you. So thank you for your patience. I know there's a lot to cover there. Um, we'll wait till next week to do the rest of our intros because we've still got people, obviously, who are making their way back. So uh, let me close this in prayer, but feel free to ask me any questions or follow up if, if that would be helpful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your work um, through your church. We thank you that we as Presbyterians um, can be one, one part of that church, one part of the body of Christ. And, and we know that we can't say to any other member, we don't need you. And yet we also know that as a member of your body, we have something to contribute uh, as well. And we thank you for how you have worked uh, in our churches in the past, and we do pray that that the story of Presbyterianism would not just be something we look back on as this kind of pristine legacy that we put up on the shelf, this trophy that we pull down from time to time, but rather that it would be something that moves and motivates us to be servants today, to be serving in, in missions, to be serving in theological education, to be serving in, in cultural leadership, to be, to be faithful as followers of Christ. And I pray that you would help our church to be a church that is continuing that story uh, in gratitude to God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.